One of the things I love about being in the text through the week is you learn all sorts of interesting, some significant, some not, but I'll give you a little trivia homework based on the song we just sang. The song we just sang is clearly a combination of two versions of the Gospels, and you could figure out which two. If you can tell me afterwards, I'll give you a lollipop. Okay? Because there's only one that has a line that was in there, and there's only another one that it could be based on the order. Uh, so there's a little hint for you. Glad you're here. We're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 12 today, and so you want to have your uh, Bibles uh, opened there. Uh, I'm going to start with an imaginary uh, construction company that was struggling with some safety-related issues. They'd had a lot of accidents at work, and they hired a, a new CEO, and the CEO's priority was to help reduce... Uh, the rate of accidents that were happening on site. And so the very first thing that he did was he tried to determine what were the contexts whereby the most accidents and injuries were happening. He narrowed it down to three things. People were not wearing hard hats uh, at all times when they were on the construction site. People did not properly harness themselves when they were doing any sort of work that required them to be off of the ground. And finally, people were not fully attentive while using the machinery. And so the CEO's first executive action was to write an employee safety handbook that dictated all the ways they were supposed to behave specifically in these situations. Six months later, the rate of accidents had not decreased at all, and so John began to try and figure out why it hadn't had the impact he hoped, and as he talked to most employees, he found out they never read the handbook. And so John, being kind of upset and angry at these new employees, he made a new law or a new rule for the company, and that was that at all times, all employees must carry their handbook with them no matter what they were doing. Shortly thereafter, they saw the rate of accidents increase. So he began to ask why, and people would tell him, well, when I'm working with the machinery, it's hard to pay attention to the machinery and hold the safety manual at the same time. When I'm climbing, it's hard for me to harness myself in and hold the safety the safety manual at the same time. And clearly what happened is that this CEO's efforts had a negative impact in the very thing that he was trying to address by promoting this safety handbook. What we're going to be looking at in Mark is how Jesus deals with Old Testament law. Specifically, how Jesus is attending to or addressing a situation whereby it seems that people's love for and attention to the Old Testament law results in them doing less God-honoring things. And so Jesus is going to address this. We find very early in our text that we are having a conversation with one of the scribes, Mark 12, 28. And if you were to open a newspaper early in the first century and go to the classifieds and you were looking for a job as a scribe, you would expect to find these sorts of job descriptions. To interpret and preserve the law. To teach the law. To serve when necessary as a lawyer in pertinent matters regarding or dealing with the law. To be a curator of the text, to transcribe and even to make corrections to the scrolls that they had. And so very early on, as we find this is a conversation with a scribe, we know very clearly we're having a discussion about the law. If we back up a little bit from this context, we know this is in the context of things Jesus has done against the temple, things Jesus is doing against the leadership. We will find there will be issues of even the Davidic kingdom coming up. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is addressing ways in which he has authority. 
to make comments on any or on all of these organizations or institutions in the Jewish law. And so Mark will help us as he leads through to find how Jesus handles law. One of the things that you'll notice is the difference between Matthew and Luke. In this is Matthew and Luke both put this as a controversy exchange. But in Mark's gospel, this man seems very eager and willing. He is desirous to learn what Jesus has to say on these topics. And so the man, seeing that Jesus had answered them well, of course, that being the questions that had preceded it, we find this man asking Jesus questions about the kingdom. And one of the things that Mark may be subtly reminding us here is that we as a people are not very good at predicting who are ideal kingdom people. Remember back in Mark 10 when the rich ruler came, they rolled out the red carpet because this is an ideal kingdom guy, and he's one of the few who walk away from Jesus without Jesus' blessing in the kingdom. And then there's these kids, and they're coming at Jesus, and everyone's pushing them away because they're not kingdom kind of people. And Jesus says, no, in fact, these are kingdom kind of people. And we find ourselves, as we introduced, are introduced to a scribe, we're going to say, no, there's no possible way that this sort of a lawyer of the law would ever have any opportunity to enter the kingdom. But if we stay with the text, we'll find that sometimes we are surprised by the people who are ready for the kingdom. Do you have any friends that you say, oh, they would never... No matter what I said, they would never accept the message of the kingdom. And perhaps this scribe's story is a reminder that there is no such thing as a person who is beyond the reach of the kingdom. And so the man asks a question, and it's a question we would expect a scribe to ask. Which commandment is first of all? And what he is doing is he's asking Jesus to look at all the commandments and to reference them in such a way to say, which is the one commandment that is like the glue that holds together all the other commandments. Is there a commandment that if you understood this commandment, you would properly understand all commandments? This commandment could then be a key that would help unlock the meaning of other commandments. There was in rabbinic teaching this concept of text being weightier and text being lighter. They were heavy and they were light. And so you take the heavier text and you help them as you're reading the lighter text. And so he's looking for from Jesus, Jesus' input on a discussion that's been going on for a long time with different rabbis having their opinions and their thoughts about what upholds the entire law. And so we're told in Mark chapter 12, verse 29, Jesus answered beginning by saying, The first is this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And if you're paying attention, you'll find that's not actually a commandment, is it? It's a precursor to or an introduction to the commandment that's coming. But there is nothing here that is required. It is simply a statement, a doctrinal truth about the reality of the oneness of God. It is talking about the preexistence of God. This is something that neither Matthew nor Luke record. And so we want to ask the question, what is Mark doing here? The importance of the question is going to come into play later, but for now what I want us to see is that there is a theme in Mark with the use of this word of one God. In Mark, three times the adjective one will be used in conjunction with the noun God. The first time we have seen it was in Mark 2.7 when they said, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And then Mark 10, 18, Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And even though there's a better wording that Mark could have used for these, he uses this same sense of one God. And again, it's repeated here in 12, 29. So what is Mark doing? In the first case, people are saying this is very strange because Jesus is doing what only the one God can do. In the second context, Jesus says, why do you call me good? Because only God is good alone. So he is saying, if you call me good and God is good, then who must I be? That's the question that Jesus is prodding him to explore and to answer. And then now here in this text, Jesus says, God alone is one God. See, in the very early days of Christianity, there was an accusation that would be posed against Christians, which was that they believed that there were two powers in heaven, one being God and the other being Christ. The Christians did not, in fact, believe, as the Israelites did, as the Jews did, that there was but one God. And here Jesus is affirming, yes, indeed, there is one God. But Jesus is also about to tell us in the very next section that David said, of my Lord, and so Jesus is going to say, if David calls this one Lord, then who is he? In Jesus' mind, there is no contradiction between him being the Lord and there being only one God. And so if that's the case, these things that we say about our love of God will apply equally to Jesus himself. So Jesus has placed himself in the center now of all that is to be said about what one does with this one God. And so the instruction of how we are to treat this one God is that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And here Jesus summarizes the first part of the Ten Commandments, where you have the first part is about man's duties towards God. Things like refusing to be a part of idols, having no other gods before him, and not using the name of the Lord your God in vain. And so it is an all-inclusive love of God, and this is a way of summarizing, of saying this is what the law is about. It is about loving God. We know that God then is to be the center of every part of our being. And I don't think it makes much sense to make too much of the individual meaning of these words like God's going to cut us into four little parts and this part we love him with and this part we love him with. Because what really we're talking about here is just all inclusive. Every single part of you. This is inclusive of emotions and spirits and intelligence and will and desires and feelings and understanding and capability and ability. And whatever else you can think of, God's going to say, yeah, love me with that too. Even in the scribe's response to Jesus, he uses a different word for the mind. And it's not to say that mind means this and mind doesn't mean that, but it's just to exemplify. Again, we're talking about every single aspect and part of yourself. You are to love God with that. As Craig Evans writes, he says that these words are meant to convey the totality of one's beings and resources. God did tell us in Exodus 30. 414 you shall worship no other god because the lord whose name is jealous is a jealous god this is how it's been since the very beginning god wants complete ownership over us our hearts our minds our souls and our strength can you imagine being asked to take a test with a hundred questions, and it was a pass-fail test, and you would pass or fail based only on the response you gave to one answer on that test. 
And so imagine you got all of them right except number 63. And somebody said, number 63 is the only question that matters on the test. Boy, wouldn't you be upset if you failed just because you got 63 wrong. What God is doing is God is saying in all of life and in everything, there is but one question on the test. And I'm going to give you the question. What are you going to do with your love of God, with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? That's all he cares about. Think about how God evaluated the kings. Of all the things that the kings did and of all the things that the kings were involved in, of Josiah in 2 Kings 23, 35, this is a summary of his kingship. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. I mean, where's the regard for the foreign policy? What, what about what he did with economy? What about his, his health care or his medical system? No, 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 none of these things matter. The thing that matters, the sole thing that matters is, does one God love God with everything? And so that should force us to ask ourselves, what is the most precious thing in your life? What is the thing that if you lost, you would grieve the most? What is the thing that drives you and motivates you? If you like something a little more tangible, if you were a car, what's the gasoline that's getting put in the tank that runs the whole system? And God is simply saying, I must be all of those things. And yet Jesus isn't done sharing which commandment is the first. He goes on to say in the 31st verse that the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And what Jesus does is he takes what we might be tempted to see as two commandments and he compresses them into one. If the first commandment was about man's duty to God, the second is about man's duty towards his fellow man. Several weeks ago on a Sunday night, I preached about uh, one love and two love Christians, and I want to just briefly touch on that. There are some Christians who believe in what is called two loves, that there are two loves. Number one, you love God, and number two, after you're done with the first, if you have some time left over, then you love other people. It's kind of like the shopping list. As long as you get the most important things, and then if you have time, you can get the things on the bottom. Is that what Jesus is trying to teach here? I don't think so because Jesus talks about no other commandment and he says singular is greater than these. These two have to be together as a single command for us to understand what God's will is. And so one love Christians are those who believe that you love God by loving others. This is simply a single command. We're not asked to be doing two separate jobs or two separate things. As James Edward writes, love for God releases the love of God. See, what Jesus has done here is he has given us an interpretive key to help this man discern the trajectory and the meaning of the Torah. The Torah asks for greater love for God as expressed in our love for others. If it were God's birthday and you loved God, with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength, what would you buy that God for his birthday? And that's what the scribe will explore in his response. But before we look at his response, I want us to look at what this reveals about Jesus' view of law 
and how he handles the Old Testament. I owe a lot of what I learned here from a guy named Patrick Miller, an article that he wrote called The Place of the Decalogue in the Old Testament and Its Law. Doesn't that sound fascinating? But what Miller helped me to see is that there are different types of commandments in the Old Testament. The first are what we could call fundamental principles. They are instructions which have what, what Miller calls a covenant trajectory. It means that they have a direction that they are pointing to and that they are heading to. Miller likens these kinds of laws as something like our Constitution. The Constitution whereby all other laws must be measured by this particular law. And so what this rabbi is looking for, this scribe is saying, what are the aspects of the Constitution that should guide every other law in our understanding what is most honorable and pleasing to God? So in this way, we see the law has an embedded trajectory. It means you're not just looking at the specific law in a time and place, but you're looking down the road saying, where did this law intend for us to go? And what did it intend for us to do? What kind of a people did it call for us to become? And when you use law in this way, this trajectory becomes helpful in understanding and reading all laws. One way to think about it is like a triangle. Where if on a triangle, if you get the angle straight, you know no matter how far you go from the angle, you're heading in the right direction. But if the angles are wrong, then the whole triangle shape is going to be off. The, what this man is saying is, what are those aspects of the law that are at the angles that help us to get the angles right? See, this is the exact sort of thing Jesus seems to be doing in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and following, he talks about murder and adultery and divorce and oaths and retaliation and all these other sorts of things. And he reads them as if they have an embedded trajectory. It was not just about doing this thing in this time and place, but these laws were intended to create us into these kinds and types of people. So the laws then are not just concerned for a certain type of behavior, but they have intentions about the kinds of people we are to be. Another example is to think about this like the comic strip. In each comic strip, you see that there is a piece that comes before and there is a piece that comes after. And the individual piece will not make any sense until you've read the first bit of the comic and the last bit of the comic. Because it has a trajectory and a movement to it. So as Miller says, that each of these laws are to then begin to broaden the implications of the commandments. Now, there are some other laws that we might call flat or legal code, whereby one just looks at a specific time and place and event, and as long as one is obedient to that thing, they are then obedient to the entire law. So there are some laws that are specific to time and place. This would then be like a single-frame cartoon, where as long as you get that one frame, you understand everything that's happening within the cartoon. See, I think what the scribe is trying to do is to discover what for Jesus is the most important of these fundamental commands so that he will understand the trajectory of the will of God. In what direction is God's will moving and heading through these laws? The scribe becomes then like any good student. He takes the teacher's instructions. If he's got the interpretive key right, he's going to give it back to Jesus, and Jesus is either going to affirm or reject what he says. And so he says, this is much more important than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Now, if you're paying attention, you're going to think, where does burnt offerings and sacrifices come from? Because in Mark's gospel, this is just out in left field. 
But what he is doing is he's taking the teachings of Jesus and he's saying, is this a fair way for me to apply what you seem to be saying? So again, it's God's birthday and you love God and you're going to get him a gift. And a lot of the scribes will say the gift you give him is burnt offerings and sacrifices and God's going to have the best birthday ever. But now what this man is saying, Jesus, if what you're saying is true, there is a better gift than burnt offerings and sacrifices. The gift you give to God on his birthday that makes him the happiest is what? Love of neighbor. That's the way you show God your greatest love and appreciation for him. And Jesus clearly understands and supports what he's doing with the trajectory of the law Because Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. The man is on the right trajectory, but it seems like there's still further he needs to travel. So what has he done that has shown that he is not far from the kingdom? The first thing he has done is he has aligned his values with the values of the kingdom. He has prioritized love of God and love of neighbor in a way that Jesus shows you are reflecting the values of the kingdom of God. This man is clearly an exception to the scribes who generally have rejected Jesus at every turn. They refuse to see that love of neighbor is greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's where we go back to Mark 2 and 3 in the controversy stories that we saw there where they were so opposed to Jesus because Jesus would eat with tax collectors and sinners. A violation of burnt offerings and sacrifices, cultic ritual. But yet it honors what? Love of neighbor. Then when the disciples were picking heads of grain, it violated cultic ritual. It violated the burnt offerings and sacrifices, the legal code. And yet Jesus said it honored the trajectory of love of neighbor. And Jesus even, he culminates the whole discussion in Mark 3, when on the Sabbath he says, is it good to heal on the Sabbath? In terms of love of neighbor, the answer is yes. But in terms of burnt offerings and sacrifices, the answer is no, because you follow legal code. So this man is on the right direction because he is beginning to accept and embrace the values of the kingdom. And I wonder if, like this man, we have any room in our vocabulary for what is more important. Do we believe that the Bible has a trajectory to it? That the will of God is expressed in these formats or in these ways? Do we as a people prioritize loving people or loving law? I wonder how many times it's God's birthday and we say, I know how I should treat this person, but I'm going to give you this instead. I was on the phone with, uh, with Daryl last night, and he was apologizing that he wasn't going to be here at church this morning because he was going to go and take care of Martha. And I said, Daryl, don't worry. You don't need to be there because you're living the sermon that I'm going to preach tomorrow. Because he's what? He's loving someone else and showing his love and care for them. And for that reason, he's not a part of us. But God is honored when we love other people. See, the scribe is beginning to adopt kingdom values, but there is one thing he yet needs to decide. What is he going to do with the king? That's why our very next text is going to be about Jesus' relationship to David, that David sees Jesus even as his very own Lord. Because to be in the kingdom means you have decided who the king of the kingdom is and who regulates and dictates what ought to and what should happen. If the Bible says to love God with all your heart, 
and soul and mind and strength, then Jesus is the one who is one with God. He himself must become central. The man is close to the kingdom because he's close to Jesus. The only thing he yet has to realize is that at the very center of the kingdom is Jesus. He's beginning to embrace the values, but he has not yet embraced the man who is at the center of every one of those values. The man must turn away from all these other things, temple, Torah, Davidic kingdom, and he must place Jesus at the very center of all of those things. What did the scribe do? We don't know. We do know there were no follow-up questions. There was no ongoing pursuit. But Mark writes this because he is inviting us to ask the question, if Jesus said to you, you're not far from the kingdom of God, how do you receive that? Do you receive that by saying, well, hey, being close is better than being far away. I'm happy just at least being close. No more questions, Your Honor. Or if Jesus were to say you are not far from the kingdom of God, would you pursue and chase and say, what must I do to be in the kingdom of God? And the answer to that question becomes, what have you done with the king? Has King Jesus become the most central thing in your life? To love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. When the first gospel sermon preached in Acts 2, when people ask what they must do to be saved, there's this introduction of baptism. Baptism, the process where it is the complete repentance from all the other things that we love, from all the other things that we pursue. We say, we are dead to those things, so that what might happen? So that we might become alive to God. And so baptism becomes one of those means and one of those ways whereby we enter then, fully forsaking everything else, into the kingdom of God. If you'd like to respond this morning, you have that opportunity while together we stand and while we sing.